0: Thank you. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, everyone. It's uh, tough times, but so good that we can stand together as a church with our brothers and sisters here and uh, across the world. All right, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for some time now. When I've been preaching, we've been going through it verse by verse pretty much. And uh, we've made it as far as chapter 10. Uh, We're towards the last week before Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, the disciples have realized that Jesus is the Messiah. And uh, since then, Jesus has been trying to explain to them what exactly this means, what implications it has for him and what implications it has for those who would follow him. And so in the last passage that we read, which was the uh, rich young ruler, um, we saw how Jesus said that in order to inherit eternal life, we would have to be prepared to follow Jesus now and die to our idols. The rich young ruler, he wasn't able to do that. He wanted to keep his comfortable, wealthy life now, to bring earthly security. And he wanted Jesus to give him eternal life After he died. Um, But that's not the deal with Jesus. Um, Jesus didn't just come to give us uh, a free pass into heaven and leave us to carry on our lives as they are today. Uh, Jesus does tell us that if we leave behind the security of our idols, whether that's our home and our or our brothers, sisters, parents, children, property, possessions, uh, if we leave all that for Jesus and the gospel, then we will receive far more from God in this life. And also into eternity. So, just before we get into the next passage, it's worth just pointing out, because this ties in, that in Matthew's account of that last passage of the, of the ruler, um, just as Jesus speaks with his 12 disciples at the end, and they're saying, Well, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus says these words, and this isn't in the Mark account, but it's, uh, it's there in Matthew's account. Um, so it says, Peter answered him, "We've left everything to follow you. What what then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, "Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious thrones, you throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So those are encouragements that Jesus spoke. To Peter and to the disciples, you know, you are—you've not left everything for nothing. You will actually sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It's worth keeping that in mind as we read on in Mark's Gospel. So let's do just that. Right now we're going to read from verse 32 uh, up until verse 45. And it says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise." We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left isn't for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must you be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so Jesus and his disciples, they're now heading up to Jerusalem. They're on their way Uh, towards what is going to be the last week of Jesus' life before he is crucified, before these horrific things that he's been describing to his disciples happen to him. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, he's telling the twelve what he's going to encounter there. It's the third time he's told them this, uh, and we see it in just the last three chapters. And this time he gives even more detail to them. He's going to be delivered Uh, over to them. In other words, he's going to be betrayed by by one of them. It's going to be Judas, obviously. He's going to be condemned to death. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spat on. He's going to be flogged and killed. And three days later, he will rise again. So knowing all of this, if you're Jesus, might make you incredibly reluctant to head up To Jerusalem uh, knowing this is going to happen but instead Jesus is leading the way it says he's leading the way he's heading up there his disciples they can't believe it they're astonished why would he seem so eager to get to the place where he's going to suffer such horrific treatment why is he so keen to get to the place where he's going to die he's going to be killed um, mocked spat on flogged why is he so keen They were astonished others in the crowd who were following him were afraid and I guess that's understandable what would they face Jesus had said already that anyone who follows him will receive and face persecutions but Jesus has set his face he set his self on the course he knew it was the course that his heavenly father had for him as we'll see it's not as though he wasn't afraid he still had fear. He was still fully human. He was facing it with trepidation, with fear. But he knew it was the will of his father. And he gladly embraced that. So on they travel. Jesus leading the way. But Jesus' words about his disciples, to his disciples about them sitting on these 12 thrones of Israel, uh, 12 thrones and judging the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, is still going through James and John's mind at this point. They, they're they not really understanding this whole thing about suffering. They've already had lots of conversations about this where Peter said, no, 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 that shall never happen. They're, they're not quite grasping it, but suddenly they're hearing Jesus talking about, you guys will rule and reign, you'll be on these 12 Twelve thrones you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So they're thinking, oh, this sounds pretty good to me. This sounds pretty good to us. Surely this is what it's all about. This is what we've signed up for when we followed the Messiah. Jesus is promising them power. He's promising them authority. But they want it even more. If they're twelve thrones, if these are the twelve thrones that we're going to be sitting on, that means some of us are going to be closer to Jesus than others. So maybe it was time for them to put their request in. Maybe it was time for them to reserve their seats, reserve their spots on these thrones. It was time for them to ask Jesus. After all, they were, they were surely part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. Jesus had taken James and John and Peter up the Mount of Transfiguration. They seem to be the closest ones to Jesus. So they're thinking, well, that's pretty good. We've got it. We're in with a pretty good shout. But hang on, there's only, there's only two spots next to Jesus. There's to the right, to the left. And there's me, there's James, there's John, there's Peter. Hmm, that's only two out of the three are going to get these So they, and but they're thinking, well, surely, you know, Peter's a bit of a hothead. He's the one who Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to. We're in with a pretty good shout here. So they came to Jesus without Peter, and they go to Jesus. Matthew's gospel says that they actually came with their mother uh, to get some extra backing there. Um, (laughs) Their mother may have been Jesus' aunt. Um, so a bit of family pressure there for them, uh, you know, surely m- my, my boys can get the spots here, so uh, m- Mark says it's them who said it, <laughs> James and John, uh, Matthew says it's, uh, it's their mother, and they say to Jesus, we want you to do, Jesus, whatever we ask you, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, sounds pretty presumptuous, doesn't it, um, But remember, Matthew 7, in Matthew 7, verse 7, uh, it says that Jesus says to them, Ask, and it will be given to you. And other parts of the Gospels, Jesus says, you know, whatever you ask for in my name, it will be yours. So the disciples, James and John, maybe are pretty confident about this. They say, well, we're hearing what you're saying, Jesus. We want you to give us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, well, what is it that you're going to ask of me? And they said, we want the seats on the right and the left. We want to sit on your right and on your left. You know these 12 thrones that you're describing? We want to just be there next to you. You in the center, us two next. Peter can go there. You know, We'll put some others down the end. Thaddeus, no one's really... He's, he's been a bit of a waste of space since we've... He's, he's probably down the end. Who's ever heard of what he's done? You know, uh, <laughs> that's probably what was going on in their minds. They're ranking themselves and they're thinking we're the ones who should be here in the center. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't even know what you're asking. Have you ever prayed prayers to God and, and not really understood what it is that you are asking him? Kind of dangerous prayers. Those sort of prayers where you say, God, I'm yours. Do whatever you want to do in my life. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. Jesus would say, do you know what you're asking? Jesus, take me wherever you want to take me. Jesus, humble me. Teach me what it means to follow you. Jesus might say, I'm not sure you know what you're asking, but I'll answer your prayer. (laughs) And often he does. Often he does. Often we don't realize the implications of our prayers. Often we don't realize the implications of what we are asking of God. There was much that James and John didn't understand. They didn't understand what was needed, what needed to happen before they sat in these thrones. Before they ruled and reigned, there were things that would have to happen first. They needed a lesson or two. They needed a lesson about the cup. They needed a lesson about baptism. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And James and John say, yes, of course we can. Of course we can do that. But their certainty kind of betrayed the fact that they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus said, well, you will. You will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And it wasn't, he wasn't talking about drinking just a cup of wine. He wasn't talking about the baptism that John the Baptist had done in the River Jordan. The cup that Jesus was speaking about was the death that he would endure. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? where he's in agony over what he's about to face. He's sweating blood even at the prospect of it. And he prays to his father and he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. He says, take this cup from me. He knows what's coming. He knows what the cup is that he will have to drink. It's the cup that leads to his death. It's actually the cup for him. It's the cup of wrath that Jeremiah 29 speaks of. The cup of God's anger, his righteous anger against sin that he's going to take on himself for the whole of mankind. And he knows what that means. He knows it means separation from his Father. And he says, everything is possible for you. So, Father... If it's possible, and it is possible, please take this cup from me. But then he reminds himself that it's his father's will that he dies. And that's why he was going to Jerusalem in the first place. And he says, yet not my will, not what I will, but what you will. He knew what was coming. That was the cup. And the baptism is the suffering that he had to face. He talks about it in Luke 20. He says to his disciples, I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I am, says the NIV. Another translation would be, how distressed I am until it is completed. He knew what this meant and he knew the distress and agony that was going to come. You see, to get to the crown, to get to the throne, there had to be suffering. There had to be death. There had to be the agonies of the cross. And Jesus knew he had to go through that first. And he's saying to his disciples, can you do that? Can you endure that? Yes, we can. You've no idea. You've no idea, said Jesus. If James and John were going to rule and reign, that's the pathway they would have to take too. And they'd not grasped it. Have we grasped it? Have we understood it? Or are we wanting an easy, comfortable life on earth, like the rich young ruler? Have we just bought into the consumeristic Western mindset about Christianity that makes Jesus, following Jesus, seem so easy? Makes this life so much more comfortable. So much better than it was before. Hey, you can follow Jesus. You can have everything. You can have wealth on this earth. You can have health on this earth. You can have all these things. Why would you turn it down? That's consumeristic Christianity. That isn't biblical Christianity. That isn't following Jesus in his way. That isn't taking up his cross. That's not what Jesus followed. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. They must take up their cross. To death. They must follow me. We have to follow in his way of suffering. That's why people like the rich young ruler and millions after him have walked away from Jesus because it's just too much. We can't go that route. We don't want to go that way. That's not what we're signing up for. James and John were going to drink the cup and undergo the baptism. They were going to die. They weren't going to take the cup of God's anger and wrath against them because that was already taken by Jesus. But they would suffer for the sake of the gospel. James would be martyred. John would be exiled on Patmos. Yet this suffering and even martyrdom was the route to reigning and ruling with Jesus. That was the call on their lives. Even so, Jesus said, I can't promise you that these places on the right and left, are, are, are my, they're not mine to give. It's not my decision. It's the Father who decides that. It's already been established. It's already been decided. By now, the other ten disciples, they've caught wind of this conversation. They, they've heard what's going on, and they're indignant. They're indignant with James and John, probably because they'd not thought about it at first. So, so Jesus called them together. And, and he says the same thing pretty much to them as he said to James and John. He says it in a slightly different way. He says, look, those who are in society and are regarded as, as rulers, they lord it over people. That's what it means to reign and rule in society, in the, in the Gentiles, he said. It's different in God's kingdom. In order to become great, you have to become a servant. If you want to be first, if you want the prominent place, if you want to be first of all, you have to serve everyone else. And he gives himself as an example. He says, even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying, Christian life, it's not about lording it over people. It's not about calling the shots. It's about humbling ourselves. It's about serving. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this today? Do we learn, okay, we're to spend our lives serving Jesus? Is that what we learn? Yeah? You're not sure. <laughs> no. Wrong. That is not what Jesus is saying. And you know what? We have to be careful to get this right. Because so many Christians say, oh, yes. I'm following Jesus. I'm serving God. I'm serving Jesus. But that's not biblical. That isn't what God calls us to do. You might be shocked about that. Jesus doesn't call us to serve him. The good news of the gospel is that the radical call to Christian discipleship is not a call to serve Jesus. It's just not. It's a call to be served by Jesus. That's what God calls us to. He calls us to be served by Jesus as we serve others. So yes, we're to serve. We're to serve others. But we're not serving Jesus. He serves us. And we're ransomed by him from death. Look carefully at this verse 45. Let's go back to it. Right at the bottom there. The Son of Man did not come to be served. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That doesn't mean Jesus comes to serve us first, give his life as a ransom for many, so we spend the rest of our life serving him. In gratitude for what he's done to us. Oh, Jesus, you gave us so much. You served us. You freed us from sin. So we're going to spend our whole life serving you now. We're going to do that. We're going to keep serving you. We're going to pay you back. We're going to, in our gratitude to you, and we are grateful, we're going to serve you and give back to you. No. Jesus doesn't ask us to do that. The Son of Man serves me. The Son of Man ransoms me from my sin and my death. Jesus is refusing to be served by us. Do you remember when when Jesus washes his disciples' feet? When Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and Peter pretty much says, Jesus, why are you washing my feet? You shouldn't be washing my feet. That's not right. That's the the role of a servant. That's what the servants did. Why are you washing my feet? I don't want you to do that. And Jesus says, And Jesus says, You don't understand. But later you'll understand. And and Peter says, No, 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 no. You'll never wash my feet. You're never going to serve me. And Jesus says, Get this. Jesus says, Unless I wash you, You have no part with me unless you let me do this, unless you let me humble myself and be your servant, you've got nothing to do with me. You can't have anything to do with me. And Peter gets it. Oh, okay. Well then, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He realizes how much he needs cleansing by Jesus. Not just part of him, but every part. Jesus isn't just some radical teacher, some other teacher with some rules about how to live our lives, gathering disciples who are going to live the way he lives, stir up some revolution. Jesus is telling his disciples he's come into this world to serve them. He's going to lay his life down for them. So their lives are going to be ransomed from sin and death. I mean, it's unheard of. No respected religious leader ever spoke in this kind of way before or since. They want people to serve them. They're the ones who are elevated. They're the ones on the platform. They're the ones who say, oh come you can serve me because God has made me so holy and you can do all of these things for me. No one said what Jesus said. He's got to be crazy to say that. Or He's God incarnate. Jesus is saying... Yes, be my disciples, but don't serve me. Yes, drink my cup. Yes, share my baptism. Yes, serve others. Yes, be the slave to all. That's what it means to become my disciple, but don't serve me. I haven't come to be served. I will not be served like this. I will be the servant. I've not come to be served, but to serve. In your relationship with me, that's how it's going to be. I will serve you. I will work for you. Do you think you can drink this cup, James and John, and everyone here, without my help, without my service? Do you think you can endure the suffering of my baptism without me serving you and helping you? Do you think you can take up your cross and follow me without my help? Do you think you can be the kind of person who renounces all fame and human status to serve other people without me serving you day and night all the days of your life? You can't do it. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. You, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing can do nothing don't think you can apart from me you can do nothing apart from me you cannot drink my cup apart from me you cannot enjoy my baptism apart from me you can't serve each other look at you you're just arguing with each other even now about who's going to be the greatest how can you do it how can you say you can do it you're just jealous of each other all the time how can you become the slave of all the only way you can do it is to remain in me, and I in you. You've got to trust me to serve you. This verse, Mark 10:45:45, 45, 45 is the key verse in the whole of Mark's gospel. It's what makes it a gospel. It's what makes it good news to us because if Christianity were just some great and radical teacher calling for sacrificial obedience of his disciples, it's not good news. It's just another ideology. It's just another philosophy. It's just another moral improvement program. It's just another heavy burden to put on all of his followers. And we know that already. You know, do we need someone to tell us that, we're, that the best way is to love each other? that the best way is to serve each other rather than boast about our status. We don't need the Messiah to tell us that. The Beatles told us that. millions Millions of songwriters and poets and authors and thinkers have told us that the way is love. Why can't we just all get on? Why can't we just all love one another? I don't understand why we can't do it. So many have told us that that's the way. So many of us to- have told us that the way. But we can't do it, can we? The world can't do it. Yesterday, there was a royal wedding. And there was an, an Bishop Michael Curry from the States preached about love. And, and many people have, have commended him. I think there was passion there, which is Sadly lacking in a lot of uh, the Church of England um, messages that have happened before maybe in royal weddings or other weddings. Um, but he preached about love and it was wonderful because he did speak about Jesus' sacrificial love for us. But, but if, you, if you listen to what he said, it, it still was kind of an implication there that Jesus was such a loving example for us because he spoke about his death and he spoke about his love for us. But it was like, well, he's an example for us. He's someone we have to follow. We have to follow in his way of love. We have to copy what he did. Here's some of what he said. He said this yesterday. When love is the way, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive. When love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will become a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields down by the riverside to study war no more. When love is the way, there's plenty of good room. Plenty good room for all God's children because when love is the way, we actually treat each other well, like we're actually family. When love is the way, we know that God is the source of all of us and we are brothers and sisters, children of God. My brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world, a new human family. And and, and he's right. And he said it in part, but what we need to underline again and again and again is that we cannot do it. We cannot just copy Jesus' example. We cannot just say, what a great way that Jesus has shown us now, let's do it, because we cannot do it. It's simply impossible unless we are continually receiving the love of Jesus into our lives. Because the world doesn't need another religious leader to say, follow me. We don't need another prophet like Muhammad. We don't need another Buddha. We don't need another political system to follow. We don't need any new age mysticisms or psychological self-help strategies. What we need is someone who can forgive us our sins and ransom us from the guilt and death and the wrath of God and give us a new life with the power to die for each other in the service of love. That's what we need. And Jesus says that's what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's think about what that means. What does that mean? First of all, he's saying this act of giving his life was intentional. It was what he intended to do all along. Christ didn't come to earth for other reasons. He didn't come just to earth to heal and deliver people from demons and to preach good messages and then, oh, whoops, someone has not liked what I've said. Oh, I've happened to end up dead. No, He came to die. That's why He came. That was His purpose. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus chooses to suffer. He chooses to die. It's not, it's not even just the Father's will. He willingly participates in his own execution. The word ransom means a payment to release someone from some kind of bondage that they're in. You'll you have seen the TV movies or, or, or shows. Someone gets kid, kidnapped, don't they? And a, and a ransom note is sent. Pay $1 million or, or your daughter's going to die. If you pay the million dollars, she'll be released. We see it all the time. But the Bible says we need ransoming too. We're in bondage. What are we in need of ransoming from? Well, Jesus says in John 8:34, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So that's all of us. We're in bondage. We're in slavery. We've been bound up. We cannot escape. We can't pay the ransom ourselves. Here's the ransom that's needed. Here's what's needed to set us free. It's not about just occasionally sinning. It's not, oh, occasionally I slip up. We're all human, aren't we? No, Jesus says we're under the power of sin. We're slaves of sin. We're in bondage to sin. That's not even the worst of it. Because Jesus also taught us that the penalty for sin is eternal punishment. Sin brings the wrath of God. It brings judgment. If we don't find a rescue from this guilt of our sin, we will be punished. That's what the Bible teaches us. Jesus says we'll be punished forever because our sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. It's not that I've just done something to upset someone else here. Oh, it's a trivial thing. No, our sin is an offense against a holy God. And so the slavery that we are in and the bondage that we are in that we need ransoming from is the slavery of sin An eternal punishment that is ahead of us. And the price, the price that is demanded is too high. We can never pay it. There's no hope, it seems. The payment has to be the death of someone who's sinless. And none of us are. Yet Jesus was. Praise God, the ransom was paid. By the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came to be our ransom. He came to set us free from that bondage that we were in. So that we were no longer slaves. His death ransoms us to release many from bondage. He's substituting himself for us. At the cost of his life, we get freedom. So Jesus is our servant. Jesus is our servant in the sense that he uses all his divine resources to ransom us and then help us and strengthen us and guide us and support us and provide for our needs. He serves us by giving his life for us. And we can't just go from that to simply saying, oh yeah, great, we'll just follow the way he did. And and Acts 17 tells us how we can't serve God. Remember, Paul says this in Athens. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands. As if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul's saying, We can't create some place for God to live and say, oh, aren't we doing you a favor, God? We can't help God out in any way. God doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anything from us. He says, rather, he gives everyone what they need, life, breath, everything else. He doesn't want to be served. We're not supplying his needs, supporting him, offering something he doesn't own. When we become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, we don't become his helper. He becomes our helper. We don't become his servant. He becomes our servant. He doesn't need our help. We need his help. That's why becoming a Christian and following Jesus is actually a humbling thing. Because we have to admit that we need help. We have to admit that we need help all the time. We need his love, we need his forgiveness. So we we turn to Christ and we say, I can't be what I'm supposed to be. I can't do what I know I'm supposed to do. I'm desperate. I I need something beyond what's inside of me or any other person. I need you. I turn to you. I, I need your Holy Spirit at work in my life. I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give you in return. I just trust you to show me mercy. I just trust you to keep forgiving me. I just trust you to empower me day by day to live the life I'm supposed to be. God, I'm keeping coming back to you as my servant, keeping coming back to you and saying, wash me, cleanse me. I need you, God. That's how we receive salvation. That's how we become a Christian. And that's where we stay. And when we do that, Christ becomes our servant and all his other radical commands, everything else he asks us to do, they're nothing that we do to gain favor in his sight, but they're just things he enables us to do. John 15 and verse 13, he says, Jesus says, he ransoms us because he calls us his friends. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. We'll come to that in a second. But he says he will lay down his life for his friends. Jesus will ransom his friends. If you're a friend of Jesus this morning, you were ransomed. You were ransomed. If you're not a friend of Jesus right now, the good news is you can become a friend of Jesus today, this morning, in just a few moments' time. But what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? Because again, we have to understand what this says. Otherwise, we misunderstand. Because you could read it as saying, oh, if you do what I say, if you do what I command, I'll be your friend. You get kids at school who do that. If you do this, I'll be your friend. If you don't do this, I won't be your friend. That's not what Jesus is saying. Actually, what Jesus is saying is not do what I command and you can become my friend. It's not this is how you become a friend. Jesus is saying, this is how you act if you are my friend. If you're my friend, and I've laid down my life for you, and I've ransomed you, and I've set you free, and I've empowered you, you'll do what I command. It will come out of what you are in me, and who you are in me. And you'll have the power to do it. Doing what Jesus commands is the evidence that we're ransomed. The ransom frees us. the ransom empowers us, the spirit empowers us, and we can't do it. If we're a slave to sin, how can we do what Jesus commands? It doesn't make sense, does it? I'm a slave to sin. I have to sin all the time. I can't do anything but sin. Jesus is saying, do what I say. Do right. Do good. I can't. I'm a slave to sin. How can I go over there? I'm a slave. I'm in bondage. Okay, I'll set you free. Now, I can follow Now I can go. Now I can do what Jesus commands. Because he enables me to do that. The Christian life is a life of love. It is a life of service. It is a life of loving others. It is a life of serving others. It is a life of submitting to others. It is not arguing and trying to get the upper hand and trying to get the place of position. It plays itself out in our friendships, in our families, in our marriages with our children. Jesus and Paul and others, and the Bible speaks about it, doesn't it? Submit to one another, he says. Husbands, give yourselves up for your wife. Love your wives as Christ Love the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's all about giving ourselves to each other, submitting to each other, doing all the things that are just impossible unless we know God. That's the Christian life. Sacrificing, suffering, because we've got hope and joy for an eternal future with Christ. Jesus didn't come in search of slave labor. He didn't need it. He came in search of those who would be his friends. He came in search of those who would trust him to serve them, who would trust him to serve them. For these he laid down his life. For these he gave his life as a ransom, that we might have the freedom to love and serve others and see a world transformed for the glory of God. Why don't we pray together as the band come back up? Father God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you sent Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you willingly submitted to the will of your Father out of love and you gave yourself for us. You did what no one else could do and you came as a servant to love us and to set us free. And Lord, we love you for that. We will always love you for that because we ourselves were powerless. And Lord, we recognize in humility that we are always powerless outside of you, Lord. If we ever think we can do something or make something of ourselves, forgive us, Lord, because we need to remain in the vine. God, we come to you even this morning and say, Give us everything we need for the rest of the day, for the rest of this week, Lord, in the difficulties and the troubles that we face, knowing that actually there'll even be opposition, persecution, suffering for your name's sake in our lives. But God, equip us, empower us by your Holy Spirit, fill us afresh, Lord, keep setting us before before us, that joy that we will have in you now and for eternity that reward which is before us in heaven, God. Enable us to love others. Enable us to show your love for the world. You said by this, people will know you're my disciples, that you can do it. You can love one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to love a hurting world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.